listening to the Abide Podcast. To find out more about Abide, go to AbideChurchFL.com and enjoy today's message. So this morning, I want to be quick. You guys have the amazing opportunity to hear from someone who has been um, very near and dear to our heart. We've maybe known each other maybe a year. But um, many of you who are here, maybe you know, maybe you don't, you're sitting here today in the middle of a miracle. What you're sitting in today was two spiritual families that came together as one through many prophetic dreams and many things. So us, us sitting in this room is a miracle right now. The fact that on both sides, everybody took the leap of faith and said, this is God. When I got the call that set everything in motion, I was, I was at their church. And so they've been a part of the journey from, from the Genesis of who we are today as Abide. And we simply asked him to come. He's a part of Gate City Church. They have a 24-7. They never stop praying and worshiping all week long. And so I just said, can you just come and share and deposit into us as a community and just speak into us? So can we honor him as he comes forward this morning? Hi. Good morning. Man, the energy in the room. Anybody could preach in this environment. Anybody could speak in this environment. It is just, it is rich and it's powerful and it's so good. Amen? It's true. It's true. I could just, you know, whistle Andy Griffith's song and give an altar call and God would meet us powerfully in this, in this environment where we're, it's, it's just so, so good. Man, there is just so much to say. And so little time to say it in. So many things in my heart that just stirring, having been here this weekend with your leaders and a lot of you guys and having known some of the team and know the story. It really is. Let me just tell you, it is a miracle. You're setting in a miracle. You really are as a guy who led a church into a church merger and, and all the things that went along with that. I mean, it really is a miracle what, what God is doing here. And I hope you realize that. If not, I'm here to tell you that it's true, that somebody's kind of from the outside looking in, this is true. And, and as I was praying for all of you, I, I, just get, I just got this little sense, this word, that this is for you, but it's not about you. Yeah. Uh, it's what God is doing in this place and has done up to this point. It's for you, because God is good, because he loves you, but it's really not about you. It's for what he's doing in his kingdom and what he's doing in the earth today. Yeah. And may say, well, that's a nice little cliche. It sounds kind of a fun saying, but no, it's actually really true because if, if we only anchor ourselves to it being for us, we're going to have a problem and we're going to make it all about us. And when that happens, we don't really go where God desires to take us. I recognized in my own personal life, I, I thought prayer was basically this how to get God to do what I want him to do. Now, if you're honest with yourself, I, don't, I'm, I, I dare say there's people in the room that was a, a bit like me, and if you're really honest and you were to evaluate 80% of your prayers, they were kind of like that. God, come, you know, come and, and, and do what I want you to do. Now, I wanted God to do some amazing things. It wasn't like I would just, Lord, let me win the lottery. It wasn't all those prayers. But I mean... To do amazing things. And I, and I realized why we tend to pray that way is because we sort of think 
that you know God calls us and this we're 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 praying for God come and join me in what I'm doing for you. You know God come and join me in what I'm doing for you. And that's okay and and God actually answers those prayers. Thank God he answers those prayers. Otherwise the first half of my Christian life would have been for nothing. But what I believe the Lord is doing in every son and daughter, he's helping us to throw a switch. And it's, and it's not about, Lord, come and join me in what I'm doing for you. Because if we're living from that place, then our prayer life is going to be about, Lord, do these things. Trying to get God to do things. But I believe he's raising up a people in a generation. And it's going to continue to move forward through all Christians. To where we're saying, Lord, don't join me in what I'm doing for you. Lord, I want to join you in what you're doing in the earth. And this is a significant pivot point in how we frame our lives and, and, and how we pray and what we see God doing. Does that make sense? Lord, I want to join you in what you're doing and get the macro of you and find myself in your story. We will never live a life of contentment and peace and joy and power as long as we're trying to fit God into our story. We're only going to find the peace with God and the power of God and to know him when we find ourselves in his story. And I'm convinced that's what the Lord is doing. That's what he's done in me. And that's what he's doing in this place. And that's why the testimony of this church is so extraordinary because abide is not about abide. It isn't, it isn't just about, oh, let's, let's build another big old church in the corner with 15 services and, and pile them in. That's not why you're here. That's not why Geo and Destiny, this team, has been called to this place. It really isn't. It's about how we grow the kingdom of God in an area that's difficult. A people of God that's been placed in an exile in a world that's difficult. And the Lord is saying, you know, bloom where you're planted, right? Grow in this place to affect this place. Because as we pray for the city, right, as we pray for the welfare of the city, they're going to be blessed because of our presence here. And it isn't going to happen on the backs of a, of a church that's only here for ourselves that we can just grow and build the kingdom that way. That's what the American church has done for a long time. But you know, God loves us, right? He's not mad at us. He's just kind of, all right, now it's time to, now it's time to grow up and grow beyond that yeah, to what I'm doing in the earth as we quickly approach the second coming of Jesus and the, and the end of the age is upon us. I'm not trying to put a date and a time on things, but I'm, but I'm telling you it's, it's, it's upon us. And it's closer than it was yesterday. Well, how do you know that? Let me just give you one quick example. And I'm not even on my notes, Lord, help me. All right. Let me just give you one example to encourage you. Matthew 24, Jesus begins to articulate what it's going to be like at the end of the age. And he, and he paints this picture. You can go and read it for yourselves. And one of the things that he says, he says that the, this gospel is going to be preached in the, in the four corners of the earth. And then the end shall come. Now, at the writing of Scripture, those folks really didn't know what the end of the earth even was at that point. They didn't know there was 
in America. They were like us in many ways. They were looking through a glass darkly. They didn't really understand. But now, as time rolls along, we realize, oh, the earth was round and, and there's continents and countries. The Lord knew that and Jesus knew that. He said, before I return, the gospel is going to hit all the four corners of the earth unto one thing that people will be born again from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, that God's going to redeem people from these nations. And what can I tell you, we have some really good friends that have a ministry that's called Renew World Outreach, and, and they, they're, they're in our spiritual family, and they develop technologies for missionaries. And I can just tell you uh, some of the stuff that they make is like literally like James Bond kind of stuff. It's just incredible what they're making. And, and they're providing these, techno uh, these technologies to large missions, organizations across the board to help them get the gospel out. This is, an, this is an incredible ministry, what they do. And I was talking to their founder just the other week, and I said, so let me ask you a question. How, how, how close are we to the, to the gospel getting to every people group, not just country, but people group, ethnic group, language? And they're predicting, get this now, they're predicting by the year 2030, that every people group on the planet, someone from that group, will have heard the gospel. The gospel will have penetrated. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to write down dates and times, but that in and of itself is a very significant marker in time that we are getting closer to the end of the age. And that's just one pr prophetic fulfillment. There are many, 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 many more. That's just one I'm personally connected to. So why do I take time and, and say all this? Because, man, God is doing something in the earth right now. He's going to come back for a bride without spot or blemish. He loves his people. He's calling them to himself, back to himself, into relationship with him, and to make a powerful church in the, at the end of the age. Well, what's it going to be like in the end times? You know, I don't know. I'm not going to write a book on it. But you know, I, I do know this. In the opening chapter of the book by Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. Who remembers reading that in high school? I'm talking about A Tale of Two Cities. I can't even tell you what the book's about right now, but I'm impressed with the opening words. It says, it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. You see that? That's really important because that's what we're facing. That's what we are walking into. Make no mistakes, it's going to be the worst of times. That's what's coming upon the planet. Now, America in our history has been largely shielded from this reality, but um, that is not guaranteed to last, is it? Much of the world is already experiencing the worst of times. That's going to be the nature of things. But it's not for us to be concerned about because we know it's going to be the best of times. We read from the prophet Isaiah chapter 60 and, and he begins to look forward to a, to a moment in the future when darkness and gloom would cover the earth and a deep darkness the people. So this is going to be the way of the world. But he says, arise and shine for your light is come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Who's he talking about? The people of God in that hour. So that's why you're here. That's why God has done these extraordinary things of calling you 
into this place. And it's not just this place. It's what the Lord is doing across the nation and around the world, regardless of denomination or religious affiliation. He knows who his bride is. He knows who his sons and daughters are. Some are Catholics, some are Baptists, some are Anglicans, some are Episcopal, some are Pentecostal, some are Church of God. I mean, he knows who they are. He doesn't see all those signposts. He looks at hearts and he's calling his people together. And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Why? Because it's a people who are no longer defining prayer as how to get God to do what we want him to do. But people who are learning to define prayer as, oh, this is the means by which I know him. And he knows me. And that he didn't make you and he didn't make me just to do something. He made us to know him. It's a critical thought, isn't it? For far too long, the church has been all about getting people saved and getting us busy. Get saved, get busy. Get saved, get busy. Get saved, get busy. And we've, we've been busy. There's churches on every street corner from sea to shining sea, from North Dakota to Texas, from Maryland to Oregon. There are churches everywhere that's been super busy about things. But I believe we, are, we have lost an aspect of our faith, and it's knowing the person of Jesus and his calling. Could we take a journey through a familiar story in Scripture very quickly to land on some truths that I believe that God has for us this morning for, for every single one of us? I probably uh, will talk very fast because <laughs> I'm aware of the time, and I, and I want to get through this, but I really believe that the Lord has something for us. We need to anchor ourselves to the Word. Right? We're not here just for existential experiences. We anchor ourselves to the Word of God. 66 books written by 40 authors over 1,500 years under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has come to us, and it's where we anchor ourselves. Moses prayed, Lord, teach me your ways that I may know you. Teach me your ways that I may know you. How do we know God's ways? We got to know God's word. If we don't know God's word, we don't know his ways, and we don't know him. It's impossible to know God apart from his word. It's impossible. So, Lord, teach us your ways that we might know you. So I encourage all of us, if you don't regularly read the scriptures, we need to, we need to, we need to put, our, put our nose in the scriptures. Why is it important? Because this is where we find truth. And Matthew 24 warns us. He spends a lot of that chapter, not just of the signs of the times, but he closes that and he warns us of deception at the end of the age. It's going to be real. It's going to be potent. And many people will fall away into deception. How are people deceived? Because we don't know the truth. Where's the truth found? It's in the Bible. It's elementary. But let's, but let's find some, some truth. And we're going to go back. And what I want to speak to you on for a few moments is courage. Is courage. What we're being called into and what you as a spiritual family are being called into is going to require a lot of courage to do what he's called you to do. Make no mistake about it. This is not the kind of place where you're going to come in and just be entertained. It's where you're going to be challenged to move into some things, to believe some things, to lay down some things, to sacrifice some things. And it's going to require courage 
to do that. We're going to go all the way back to a familiar character in Scripture by the name of Gideon. If you've got your Bibles, you can find your place in Judges chapter 6. And again, I, I want to truncate this message the best I can to get us to the, to the truth in this story, what I believe the Lord has for us this morning. Now, you may, who's ever heard of Gideon before? Everybody's heard the name. Right? If you kind of know your Bible, you may be a little familiar with the story. We know he was this amazing guy who went through a unique process. And the end result, he would have 300 men that would follow him in a battle. And the only weapons they had were a clay pot and a, and a torch and a horn. And 300 of them were going to go up against insurmountable odds against an army of 150,000 Midianites. We might know that. And we know just by that, man, Gideon must have had a lot of courage, right, to lead 300 people who were untrained with basically some interesting implements up against a trained army of 150,000. That's either insane or incredibly courage. But where did this courage come from? Was it his training? Was it his education? Was it his pedigree? Or maybe he had a great history? Or was there something different going on in the life of Gideon. So we pick up the story in Judges chapter 6, and here is the quick context. Again, I'm going to go really fast. Are you ready? I used to be an a, um, auctioneer. Hey, if I had a to find it, we're going to do that. We're not going to. I'm going to break into the auctioneer. Just kidding. I was never an auctioneer. I just learned to talk really fast. <laughs> the, uh, context of Gideon's, the context of Gideon's uh, situation was quite simple. Moses is dead. Joshua is dead, and the scripture tells us that in the land of Israel, everybody was doing what was right in their own sight. Does that sound remotely familiar? Everybody was doing what was right in their own sight. That's what's happening in the land. Judges 6, it says, verse 1, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. Neither sleep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It invaded the land to ravage it, right? They ravaged it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So what we find, if you know your Bibles, Israel has once again turned away from the Lord, which resulted in these other peoples called the Midianites to invade the land. And they just didn't invade the land. They stayed in the land using guerrilla warfare tactics. They were always taking from the people. They were always stealing. Every time they'd have a crop or try to have a cow, the Midianites would come and they would take it from the people. The situation was grim. It was a grim time. And they began, as a people, begin to cry out to God for help. Come and rescue us. How many of you realize God hears those kind of prayers? Even when we made a bad situation, we said, God, come and help. And God actually comes and helps us. How many of you ever made bad situations of your life? Maybe some bad decisions. Can I tell you, God never recoils from your brokenness. God never recoils from your mess. God never recoils from my bad decisions. He never does. He will let us make all kind of bad decisions. But then when we come to him, he will draw close to us. Now we zoom in on the person of Gideon. Let's just read these scriptures. 
The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Now, in this passage, we find Gideon doing a very difficult job. He was threshing wheat. Has anybody ever threshed wheat before? Anybody in the room has ever threshed some wheat? Not too many in the room. I don't know much about threshing wheat, but I, I, it is a thing, right? And how you thresh wheat, especially in ancient times, you would take the bundle of wheat, you would get up in a high place because the little wheat grain has something around it called what? Chaff. And that chaff has to get off of the grain. So you get in a high place and you begin to beat the wheat. Hopefully some wind's going to come by and it's going to blow the chaff off and the wheat is going to fall to the ground and then you're going to be able to gather it, okay? That's the job he's doing. But it says he's doing it in a wine press. Now, what's a wine press? I know nobody here knows what wine is or anything like that nature, but... If, if you happen to know what wine is, it's an, it's an alcoholic beverage. And in ancient times, they would have a wine press, and that was actually down low where they would mash the grapes, and thus the fermentation process would begin. So he's having to do it like down low and not up high. And you talk about a messy job. Why is he doing it down low? Because he's hiding from who? The Midianites, so he's doing a very dirty, nasty job in the most difficult of locations, trying to hide in fear to protect what little grain he could get for his family before the Midianites stole it. And this thing happens. God shows up. The angel of the Lord appears. We know in Scripture the angel of the Lord is called a theophany. It's when, it's when God appears in a bodily form, and it's oftentimes referred to as the angel of the Lord. And he appears to Gideon and he declares him as a mighty warrior. And you're going to defeat the Midianites, Gideon. You're going to do this thing. Now think for a moment of how absurd that is. That God is showing up in a very unlikely place at an unlikely moment to, to a very unlikely person and he says hey guess what Gideon you're a valiant warrior remember he's hiding in the wine press out of fear of his grain being taken from him and you are going to defeat Midian as one man you know when God begins to speak to us he's going to speak to us with absurdity he's going to call us to do things say things be in places that seem absolutely impossible and our natural mind is immediately going to be adversarial to what God is calling us to do. So you can imagine before we're too hard on Gideon here, he's like, you've got to be kidding. And Gideon, his initial response back to the angel of the Lord is simply this. He begins to blame God for everything that's happened and all of his troubles and woes. God, look what you've allowed to happen. Where are you? This is a mess. You know, it's interesting. Human pattern tends to blame, doesn't it? 
We want to blame. We want to blame somebody else. Blame mom, blame dad. Ultimately, where we end up through blaming is we end up blaming God, don't we? We start off blaming our situation, our circumstance, our mom, our dad, our aunt, our uncle, our boss, our teacher, our coach. We begin blaming, but ultimately, if we keep on blaming, where does that blame ultimately land? Upon God who allowed it or caused it or orchestrated it. So he begins to go after God, and, and God doesn't even, even entertain the question. Have you ever asked God questions that he doesn't answer? How was he, he, he doesn't even negotiate. He doesn't even meet Gideon in the question because Gideon's question is so absurd. And the Lord doesn't even engage with this accusation that Gideon is making against God. All God does is he simply states the same thing that he just stated. He said, Gideon, you're a mighty warrior. You're going to defeat Midian as one man. But Gideon is in this deflecting thing because now, because what God is going to do, what he does for all of us, he's pursuing us, he's coming after us, and he wants to drill down into your heart on what's really going on and what's causing us to be separate from him. And he's like pursuing, he's like doing surgery on Gideon. And Gideon is deflecting what God is saying because he's having a difficult time receiving it. If I said to all of us in this room, God loves you, how many of you would say, yeah, I know that? I know that. Right? We know that, right? Yeah, we know that. For God so loved the world, God loves me. I get it. What if I said to you this? God likes you. God likes you. It's not quite as easy to receive, is it? Because love is a word that we use for all kind of stuff. I love French fries. I love my wife. I love my grandchildren. I love my car. Right? We've really diluted the word love. That's why sometimes we can use a lesser word like like for a more intense effect, that God actually likes us. And when I say that, something rises up in us because we know who we are. I know what I thought last night. I know, I know what my heart tells me sometimes, that it ain't good. None of us in this room would like, could you imagine what, we, what it would be like to walk around with a little thought bubble above your head that just registered everything that you were thinking at a given moment in time? How would you like that? Think about it. A little thought bubble up here that was showing verbatim everything you thought as a text message that's scrolling across. We would never leave the house, would we? We would never leave the house. And we know that about ourselves. And we immediately begin to think, God likes me. No, nobody could really like me if they really knew me. And we begin to like operate that way. But oh, God is pursuing Gideon's heart, isn't he? And he begins to go after him. He's drilling down past the rational issues to the deep-seated things in his heart of abandonment and identity. That's what's going on with Gideon. And Gideon now, he begins to offer another excuse. He said, yeah, but you don't, you don't know me, man. I'm, I'm, from the, I'm from like across the tracks. I'm from the, I'm from the poor families on the other side of the tracks. And I'm not just from the poor family across the tracks. I'm from like the poorest of the poor on that side. I mean, I, I am the weakest and the youngest in my family. Truly in this patriarchal culture, he could not have been in a worse sociological place. Being in a, from a weak tribe, a weak family, and the youngest in the family. This is not the kind of guy you would ever think would accomplish anything. But yet God touches him. He's getting in touch with his weakness. And God, again, speaks identity over him. He says, 
Gideon, valiant warrior. I'm with you. You're going to defeat the Midianites. Now here, Gideon finally begins to realize something unusual is happening. In God's pursuit of us, we're going to recognize, hey, this is unusual. This is strange. Who, who, who is this God? And he begins to realize, oh, I need to go do something. So he immediately thinks, I need to go do a sacrifice. So he, he goes and gets things to sacrifice. He brings it back to the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord gives instructions on how to prepare the sacrifice. And he prepares the sacrifice, puts it on a, on a rock, and the fire of God comes, and he, and he consumes the sacrifice. And you find that in verses 17 through 21 of Judges 6. And in this moment of sacrifice, in this moment of encounter, revelation strikes the heart of Gideon. As God is pursuing him, he realizes something unusual has happened. Now Gideon turns and begins to face God. Revelation hits him. And this is interesting what he says. This is what Gideon says in verse 22. It says, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord. What? Face to face. I don't have time this morning to unpack this interesting Hebrew idiom of face to face, but it's a powerful expression of closeness and intimacy and encounter. And Gideon is, is having this moment with God. And then God speaks to Gideon and says, peace, do not be afraid. You're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar in that place and he named it, the Lord is peace. The angel of the Lord is speaking to Gideon powerfully. Gideon builds an altar and names a place Yahweh Shalom, which means like God is peace. What's happening in the life of Gideon, he's being rooted and grounded in the love of God, an encounter with God face to face. God is not recoiling from Gideon because of his situation, because of his blaming, because of everything he has probably done. God did not recoil, but he met him. He met him, this unlikely person, in an unlikely place, in an unlikely situation. He meets him face to face, and Gideon gets peace. We long for peace, don't we? Philippians 4, 7 tells us that what? And the peace of God, what? That transcends all understanding is the very thing that guards our heart and causes us to have courage. Gideon, it was necessary for Gideon to have an encounter with the living God. Not just a cerebral encounter or an academic encounter or a theoretical encounter, but I mean an encounter that would be mind, soul, and body. You realize what theologians tell us, we, are, we, we believe in this thing called trichotomy, right? You are made up of body, soul, and spirit. That's who you are, and God encounters every piece of that, every part of that. And he has this amazing experience. Now, sometimes what we do here as the church, a person might have an encounter, and then we get them busy. Now start serving, start doing, go out and go start preaching the gospel. But that's not the instructions that God gives to Gideon in this moment. He does not immediately go out to war, but the Lord speaks to him and tells them this, Judges 6.25. He says, that same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height using the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Now just understand, in this time, the nation of 
Israel, their, their true faith in Yahweh, this, you know, monotheistic faith, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is what? One God. It had gotten amalgamated with the pagan religions of the land. It had, it had gotten a mixture had taken place. So what God is calling Gideon into is that, Gideon, you do have a bit of a problem. Your heart is part for me, but there's a lot of paganism in there, and you're going to have to go home, and you're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to go home. Don't go preach the gospel. Go home first. Don't go out and do anything until you go home. Go home to your heart and go home to your family. And so Gideon does that. He goes home to deal with family issues, generational curses, bondages. We could camp here for millennia and just talk about this all by itself. But he had to deal with the mixture and mess in his own heart. He says, go and tear down this false altar that's been built in your family and all these lies that you believe, tear it all down. But the instructions are interesting. He says, take the raw material of all the stuff that you're tearing down and build back a proper altar in its place. What? I was, you know, God is going to use your family, use your situation, use your circumstances, use all your mess as the raw material to build back a proper altar, which is your life because you are a house of prayer. Do you hear that? Isn't that encouraging? You don't have to become somebody you're not. God's going to use who you are and going to use all the raw material, all the mistakes, everything from your past. God's going to use all that to actually build a proper altar that's going to bring him glory. Man, that's so encouraging for somebody messed up like me, you see. Because the truth is when we come to faith, we have a lot of stuff inside of us. And I'm convinced, and this is how we're going to land the plan, all right? I believe there, are, there are, are two strategic attacks of the enemy against your life and against my life to eclipse the plan of God for our lives. There's probably more, but I've kind of boiled it down to two. The enemy, he's a thief, isn't he? John 10, 10, the thief comes to what? We know, to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he's after. He wants to, he is coming after. And what is he using to get you out of God's plan and his love for you? I believe he's using two things. I believe he's using a religious spirit and, Tyler said it earlier, an orphan spirit. A religious spirit and an orphan spirit. Very simply, I'll define this. A religious spirit will cause you to feel like you have to earn it. An orphan spirit will make you feel like you don't deserve it. And the enemy is going to use those two lies to steal away water from you. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you might have what? Life more abundant and to the fullest. So the enemy has a strategy, and his strategy is to steal and take from you the abundance God has called you and us into, and he's using as two primary weapons of mass destruction. They're actually here. And it's a, a religious spirit and an orphan spirit. A religious spirit makes you feel like you have to earn it, you have to measure up, you have to keep all the rules, you have to do all these things to make yourself worthy of God's love for you. And an orphan spirit will cause you to feel, man, no, I don't, I don't deserve this. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I thought. You don't know what I clicked on the Internet last night. You just don't know how bad off I am, God. I, I, don't, I don't deserve it. But Jesus says in John, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
I will come to you. So when we talk about courage, it's born from this place. God had to deal with Gideon. He sent Gideon home to deal with his heart and family. We find this to be true throughout Scripture. Paul had this amazing encounter with God. Everything starts with encounter. And then, and then after, after Paul, he gets this encounter with God, he had to go into Arabia for three years. Why? To be deprogrammed from all of his religion and religiosity that he had devoted his entire life to as being a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had to literally be deconstructed in order built back up. And it took some time for that. And that's what the Lord is doing in you and in me and in the body of Christ. He is coming to us. He is pursuing us. He is coming after you. We sing reckless love to I hardly can't sing it anymore, honestly. But it's, it is a, it's a power. He is pursuing. What is he doing? He is pursuing your heart to bring you into encounter, unto courage. And the example of Gideon teaches us this. This is, this is a courage that's not an outcome-based courage, but an intimacy-based courage rooted in identity. If there was going to be a thesis of this little message this morning, it's simply this. The example of Gideon teaches us God is not into an outcome-based courage, right? But an intimacy-based courage rooted in a right identity. Into our, Jesus' name, no more. All right. I really believe that's what the Lord is doing in this, in this time and era. He is coming after us. And he is calling us to himself. And he is freeing us from the religious spirit and the orphan spirit. Jesus spent three years of public ministry. And his primary purpose, do you know what Jesus primarily did when he came for three years? His, his primary focus and calling you may miss this if you don't know it, right? You may miss it. His primary calling was to save his people from religion. He came first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Why did he come to the Jew first? Because the Jewish mind had gotten so impacted by the religion of the day, they had lost sight of the truth. So when Jesus comes to his people, the first thing he wants to do is set us free from a religious spirit. He's still doing... Today, what he did then, because he's the same yesterday, day, and forever. So when Jesus shows up, his intention is to set me free from the religious spirit, the mixture inside of me that somehow makes me feel like I have to somehow earn the approval of God, to get the acceptance of God, to walk in the love of God. He's going to set me free from the orphan spirit that feels like I'm abandoned or God has somehow forsaken me. And he says he'll come to us. Can I invite us all to stand? Let's just begin worshiping just for a moment. Lord, we worship you. We worship you. Lord, I know this was like a, a, a fire hydrant this morning, but Lord, I believe, Holy Spirit, you're in the room. You're in the room right now. You're in our midst. Lord, you're doing something great. God, in the land, Lord, I pray, Lord, as Corey Asbury's song says, Lord, catch us up in your story, Lord. Catch us up in your story. All of our life for your glory. Lord, like Gideon in the, in the ages past, Lord, you're still doing the same thing. You're still coming to people who don't have the greatest resumes. You're still coming to people who, who made lots of mistakes and find their lives in shambles. You're still coming to us. Lord, it's your principle, it's your truth that said, you've not chosen many noble ones. You've not chosen many wise. 
You've chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wisdom of man, which qualifies every single one of us in this room. And you're sitting in this room right now this morning because the Holy Spirit has drawn you here. And yes, it is for you, but it is not about you. It's about the coming king. It's about Jesus who, who is coming. And it's not his will that any should perish, but all have eternal life. He's calling his people not back to doing something, but to our first calling to be priests before him. To minister to him. First and foremost, first commandment first, and ministering to others. That's what he's doing. That's why you're here. But we got to say yes to that. It's not enough just to look at it from a distance and say, yes, Lord, sign me up. Sign me up. And the thing that gets in the way, I promise you, is the religious spirit that's trying to make you feel like you got to earn something, you got to prove yourself, you got to validate yourself to others, or you got to validate yourself to your own self through works. Or the orphan spirit that comes and says, you really don't deserve it, you messed up too bad, you're, you're, <laughs> you're jacked up. we got to tear these off of our life. And I believe right now in this moment, the Holy Spirit can set you free of those two things. I don't think it takes years of counseling. I believe in counseling. But I believe the Holy Spirit who is the great counselor. He's trained in all manner of therapeutic processes. The Holy Spirit, he's able to do it. And for you guys, I'll just be very pointed. For you guys to enter into all God has for you in this place and what's gonna happen in the larger Tampa Bay area, it's going to require a great deal of courage. And that courage is going to be centered on you knowing who you are in Jesus, your identity, and have an intimacy with Him. Because if you don't, you're going to be looking for something that God doesn't want you looking for. Power, position, title. That's not what He's calling us to. He's calling us to lay down our lives. And the courage is going to come from intimacy. So I just want to invite you, just if, if, if this has resonated with you in any way, could you just come and gather in these fronts and let's just, let's just begin crying out to God forever, just crying out to God and say, Lord, I, I hear you, I hear you. Maybe you feel like Gideon, maybe you feel like, Lord, you just don't know. You don't know me. You don't know where I've been or what I'm doing. You don't know me. He knows you. He sees you. He sees your situation. He's pursuing you. He's knocking at the door of your heart. And he really wants to set you free. And that's from encountering the living, powerful presence of God. Can I tell you something? I, I served God for 25 years before I ever even understood what the love of God was. I was doing the deal. I was doing everything I, I knew to do. But God stopped me one day. And this is basically what he said to me. He said, son, I love you. I didn't make you to do something. He said, son, I know I know you want to serve me. I know you want to do things, but I didn't make you to do something. I made you to know me. So I know you want to do my will, but I need you to know you are my will. You are my will. He made you, brother. He made you, sister, to know you, to set down, to set down and to be with him talk about a prayer room and a house of prayer that's what the whole thing is about 
we come and set before a living God that we might know Him and encounter Him and catch what's on His heart and then begin interceding what's on his heart and you might be thinking yeah but we gotta we gotta evangelize we gotta go to the go around the world preach the gospel that's true but Matthew 9 Jesus says yeah but pray pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might raise up laborers I mean even evangelism and mission is all tied back to the place of prayer and intercession Jesus said I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell are not gonna prevail against it so if that's you say, yes, I don't know if I've ever encountered God like Gideon has. I don't know if I've ever encountered God like Paul has. I don't know if I've ever encountered God as, as I hear the people talking about. That's for you right now this afternoon. So we just begin worshiping Him and just praying and just seeking God. Let's just all, let's all begin praying right now. Lord, we love you. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Let's just let the conclusion of this service just be just a time. Say, Lord, I'm here. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Touch me with your fire. Touch me with your fire, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. like this and hear something about the religious or orphan spirit or whatever, you're like, I'm good. I feel good. Um, the problem is sometimes most of us, when we deal with so much pain and hurt from a young kid all throughout our life, it's like when you develop a pain in your back and it hurts for a couple weeks, but then you just kind of get used to it. And then two years later, you don't even really feel it until one day it seizes up and you're shaking on the bathroom floor. Anybody? Um, and some of us have been walking around with this pain and this thing of rejection, this thing of being looked over, this thing of never feeling measuring up. You walk into a room and you you size up everybody in the room, whether it's religious stuff or for guys, you're sizing up who makes more money than you, who has more stuff than you, women who's prettier than you, all that sort of stuff. And you just think that's just normal life. That's just how everybody lives. It's not how you were designed to live. That is a spirit of orphanhood. That is a spirit of rejection. And you can live free from that today. The problem is we walk with it for so long, we're just used to wearing it. And if you just want to live free from those tormenting thoughts that you've had your whole life, like calm down, there is freedom. He met me, he's met other people. So if you just feel like, I mean, I do have those thoughts. I have those feelings of being looked over, of trying to measure up. Please come down.
I just want to pray for those in the room for when Dustin said, you know that Jesus doesn't just love you, he likes you, that it offended you. I felt it in the room when he said, Jesus doesn't only love you, he likes you. I felt the offense. I felt the, I don't like that, Lord. So right now, in the name of Jesus, God, that John 15 would become a reality in our lives. That not only do you love us with the same love that the Father loves you, but that you like us and you call us friend. God, that our lives would align with the Word of God, that the Word of God would be truth over our lives, and that the lie that you love us but you do not like us would be torn down in the name of Jesus. God, we thank you that you like your children, that you like us and that we were your idea, that you chose us. God, would that become our reality this morning? And that thing that rose up in some of us, as Dustin even said that, that offended us, God, that it would be torn down, God, it would be uprooted and we would be pulled out by the root in the name of Jesus. God, would there be a reality over your children this morning, a revelation that you like us in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we thank you, God. We thank you for identity being written over your children this morning, Lord. like an, a giant eraser and he's erasing words and lies and, and titles and diagnosis and the labels and he's rewriting this morning his truth over you and for some of you I see him like a gardener like taking things by the root and pulling it out God, every stronghold being torn down brick by brick this morning and being rebuilt by the truth of your word in the name of Jesus.
I just want to encourage you if you're in the room to just honor what the Lord is doing in the room. I just want to, can we just put out our hands? I just want to pray one last time over us. Father, in Jesus' name, we want a capacity to receive this love. We're not asking it for those that are just on the outside. We're asking for everyone in the room to be able to receive the fullness of love, the affirmation, the connectivity through the Holy Spirit of the love of the Father. We want to know this love. Every barrier that would stop us from receiving this love, we say, God, you can have it. You can break it down, you can have it. We want to live nothing withheld, nothing held back, no offense, no fear, no doubt. We ask as a spiritual family for the capacity to live in this love, not just to experience it on a Sunday morning, but to live in this love. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being present. Thank you for being an intentional God who responds to our coming again and again. We're not going to formally close or dismiss. You're welcome to hang out as long as you need to be touched by God. We're just going to linger here. We just ask, please honor what God's doing all across the room, even for those who are not in the altar space. We just want to make space for God to go deep, deep, deep. Let the roots grow deep until you're welcome to just soak and receive. There's no pressure. We love you. Next Saturday morning here at Abide, there's a prayer room meeting in the morning here. Um, you'll get more info on that on Facebook. But if not, just welcome to receive and just let God touch you. And let Him go all the way deep down. Let the roots grow deep into your heart. We love you guys. Have an amazing week. Thank you.